Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork. In today's episode, I want to discuss how to find hope, comfort, and strength during times of chaos, danger, uncertainty, and unrest. We can learn an interesting source by studying something that happened in England during World War II. The BBC gave a series of wartime radio broadcasts to help the people be able to endure the fear, the loss, and the very real danger that they were facing. Let me give a little bit of historical context that led to the creation of these broadcasts. During World War II, the German Nazis dropped bombs on London and other strategic cities across Britain for eight months straight. This intense bombing campaign was called the Blitz, which is the German word for lightning. This constant bombing created a situation where now not only the soldiers were at war, but also the ordinary civilians suffered as their small island nation was bombarded by about 400 planes a night and suddenly their cities and their homes became the front lines of a battlefield. Can you imagine what that would be like? Their homes, their country, their freedom, their possessions, their families, and their very lives were in constant mortal peril. It was a time that was very scary with very real danger. It was during this time that the British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, invited a man named C.S. Lewis to give a series of talks over the radio. His assignment was to explain, in simple terms, the concept of Christianity. How strange it must have seemed to turn on the radio, which was constantly bringing news of the war, and of death and of destruction to also feature a man speaking about decent behavior, fair play, and the importance of knowing right from wrong. These broadcasts were delivered over the radio from 1942 to 1944, and the message was so powerful and influential that they were published in three small volumes so that people could read and reread these messages. After the war, they were then combined and republished into a single book that is now called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis understood a lot about the fear and danger of war because as a young man, he had fought in the trenches of World War I. Of course, it wasn't at that time called World War I. It was called the Great War, or the War to End All Wars, because they hoped that nothing like that would ever happen again. But unfortunately, just 24 years later, World War II began. Lewis again did his duty for his country, but this time, as an older man, he served not as a soldier, but as an air raid warden. And he also gave talks to help encourage the men who were fighting in the Royal Air Force. They needed a lot of encouragement because everybody knew that on average, these young pilots would only survive about 13 missions. 
It was in thinking about the danger that these young men faced that prompted Lewis to begin speaking out about the problems of suffering, pain, unfairness, and evil. He told his friends that he accepted the task given him by the BBC of giving this series of wartime broadcasts on Christian faith because he believed that England, which had come to consider itself part of a modern, intellectual, post-Christian society, had never been told in basic terms what the religion is about. He humbly says that he was chosen for the task not because he was a specialist, but because he was an amateur. He absolutely understood the modern intellectual viewpoint of the educated elite and the rising generation because he himself had been an atheist. But in time, through diligent study using all his intellectual skills of study and reason, he concluded that Christianity is the only logical explanation for the conditions on earth, our state of being, our purpose in life, and our hope for fairness and justice. He goes through a series of steps in explaining how he came to this conclusion. In part of it, he addresses the question that a lot of people ask, and that is, if a good God made the world, then why has it gone wrong? He says for many years he simply refused to listen to any Christian answers to this question because he kept on feeling that whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier just to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But he says that threw him back into another difficulty. His argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But then he thought, wait a minute, where did this idea of just and unjust come from? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line should be. What was he comparing this universe with when he called it unjust. He says, if the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, then why did he, who was supposed to be part of the show, find himself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because he is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, he found he was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely his idea of justice, was full of sense. His conclusion was that atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we never should have found out that it has no meaning, just as if there was no light in the universe, we should never know that it was dark. He continues to explain that the world was created to be good and wonderful, but that there was a rebellion, and an evil power has set himself up as the prince of this world. Therefore, while we're in this world, 
It's like we are behind the lines in enemy-occupied territory. And that for Christians, going to church is like joining the underground and actively seeking to hear messages of hope from the other side. He then addresses another objection. He says, okay, if you believe this is true about a good creation turned into enemy-occupied territory, then the next question is obviously wondering if this state of affairs is in accordance with God's will or not. If it is, then he's a pretty strange God. And if it isn't, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being that's supposed to have absolute power? Lewis's explanation is that God created people to have free will. That means we can choose right or wrong. He says some people think they can imagine a creature which is free, but has no possibility of going wrong, but he can't. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. So why then did God give people free will? He answers that although free will makes evil possible, it is also the only thing that makes love or goodness or joy worth having possible. A world filled with mindless robot-like creatures would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his children is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other. Of course, God knew what could happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. But apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. Lewis then says, well, perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him. But there is a difficulty about disagreeing with God, since he is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. He says, you could not be right and God wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. Someone responded to this line of thinking by asking C.S. Lewis a question. Why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? His answer was that the better stuff that a creature is made of, the more clever and strong and free it is, the better it will be if it goes right, and the worse it will be if it goes wrong. He gives the example that a cow cannot be very good or very bad. It just sort of exists. But a dog, on the other hand, with its higher intelligence, has more capacity to be either good or bad. A child has more capacity than that to be good or bad and can therefore be better or worse than a dog could be. Continuing up the scale, an adult has more capacity to be really good or really bad, more so than a child could be. A genius has even more capacity to be better or worse than, say, a person of average intelligence. And a superhuman spirit has the capacity to be the best or worst of all. So, as humans, we have free will and an innate understanding of justice and injustice. 
we naturally and instinctively seem to know the difference between right and wrong. We also feel that we ought to choose justice and rightness, but with our free will, we don't always do that. He then explains what Christianity is and how it deals with that problem. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed away our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Believing that basic story is what makes a person a Christian. He says any theories beyond that as to how or why are not nearly as important as the core. In fact, the title, Mere Christianity, means that Lewis is only explaining the basic principles of Christianity, not of any particular Christian church like the Church of England, or Catholicism, or Protestantism, or whatever. Just Christianity in general. The things that all of these churches have in common is the belief that Jesus is the Christ. Going back to his analogy of the earth experience being like living in enemy-occupied territory, he says that the creator and true king came quietly, almost like being in disguise, when he came and died for our sins, but that he will come again with power and glory later on and defeat the enemy, cleanse his kingdom, and claim his throne as the real and proper king. Lewis explains that by coming first, quietly and discreetly, the king is giving us an opportunity to join him freely. We get to choose what side we want to be on, either the king's side or the enemy's side, before the great final battle. I loved his explanation in the book about how Christianity elevates humanity. He says that if an individual only lives 70 years or so, then a state or a civilization, which may last for hundreds or even a thousand years, is far more important than the individual. But if Christianity is true and human souls are eternal, then the individual is incomparably more important than states or kingdoms or civilizations. I also thought that Lewis makes some really interesting points in talking about people's perception of Jesus and who he was and what he was. Many people claim that they can accept Jesus as a good man and as a great moral teacher, but they don't accept his claim about being the Son of God. Lewis says that there is no way that can be true. Think about it, he says. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, not just for an offense that you made toward him, but all sins. And unless the speaker is God, then this claim is so preposterous that it's comical. So, if Jesus was just a man and not the Son of God as he claimed to be, then he was not a good man and a great moral teacher. He was a delusional lunatic or even a devil. There is no in-between option. Lewis says, You can shut him up for a fool, 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. In another section of the book, Lewis talks about morals. Morals are a person's standards of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and is not acceptable for them to do. To introduce this section, he shares a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. The boy replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Lewis says that this is what most people think of when they think of the concept of morality. They're just a bunch of rules that keep everybody from having a good time. But Lewis explains that in reality, moral rules are the directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown, strain, or friction in the running of that machine. That's why these rules at first seem to be interfering with our natural inclinations, because there are lots of things that look like the right way to run the machine, but don't actually work. He explains that morality is concerned with three things. First, the idea of fair play and harmony between individuals. Second, it's about tidying up or cleaning up the inside of the individual. And third, being in harmony with the purpose of human life. He says most people don't seem to mind the first aspect of morality, the part about not hurting other people, but they don't see why the other part should make any difference. To help explain why these matter, he used a couple analogies. One was the idea of a fleet of ships. Each one of us is our own ship. He says that the first part of morality is not to crash into the other ships, and that seems quite reasonable. But it's the second part, the part about being clean and functioning well on the inside, that is necessary so that we don't crash into the other ships. We might not intend to crash into the other ships, but say if our rudder doesn't work or there's some breakdown, we can't help but crash into the other ships, even if we don't mean to. Lewis also used the example of playing instruments in an orchestra. We need to make sure that our instrument is in good condition. And it helps if we listen to the conductor instructing the band on what to play so that we're all playing the same tune. Playing a tune in harmony creates beautiful music, but if everyone just does their own thing, then it's just noise. Lewis also expounds on some of those moral rules for good living. Some of the things that we should do and some that we shouldn't do. I thought that one of the most interesting sections is the chapter called The Great Sin, where he explains that the greatest of all human vices is pride. He explains what he means by pride, since that word can be used in many different contexts. He says he's not talking about self-respect or the pleasure of being praised, like when we're proud of our accomplishments. 
And he's not talking about having a warm-hearted admiration or respect for someone or for yourself. Like when you say, I'm proud of my son, or I'm proud of you, or I'm proud of myself. These are all forms of praise and admiration, and there's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they're all very good. The funny thing is that the kind of pride Lewis is talking about usually doesn't use the word pride in a sentence. It's not a statement. It's more of a way of being. This kind of pride is a form of enmity. It's enmity between man and man and enmity to God. It makes the other person your enemy, so to speak. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Lewis says, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, the pride has gone. It's interesting that the opposite is also true. It is pride that creates the frustration of feeling like you're below someone else. It is that same idea of comparison. Lewis says that this feeling of pride is what makes us upset when we feel like someone has snubbed us, or we feel underappreciated or patronized. It's pride that makes us feel upset when someone else succeeds, or we think they're prettier than us, or more successful than we are, or more noticed and admired than we are. As I read through this, I couldn't help but wonder how C.S. Lewis would respond to the social media we have today. What he would say when he sees a person post a selfie and then sit around and wait to see how many likes he or she gets. Or the person who feels jealous because someone else posted pictures of their awesome vacation because I didn't get to go on an awesome vacation. It's funny that often when we do these kinds of things or feel this way, we're not thinking that we're being competitive. We're thinking about ourselves and our worth and value and what we think we deserve. But the measuring stick for determining that value and what we think we deserve is competitive. It turns other people into rivals and enemies, and that's not good. In conclusion, I think that although the book, Mere Christianity, is kind of a difficult read because C.S. Lewis speaks in a vernacular that is not familiar in our day and age, but the principles that he expounds are as correct today as they were when they were first shared over the radio in England during World War II. The purpose of his message was to bring clarity, 
purpose and hope to a war-torn people who were under terrible stress. The answer was to share and expound the people's understanding of Christianity. The answer to the problems in today's society are also that of decent behavior, fair play, and the importance of knowing right from wrong. It seems appropriate to end with a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See you next time on Linda's Corner.